0: This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast.
1: If I give up, I give up on all the people that I'm helping and all the people that I'm working with. And if we give up, they will win. It's as simple as that. Because they are the extremists and others. They are always organized. They always have the energy and We should take breaks once in a while, take care of our mental health, uh, but at the same time, wake up and do the good work.
0: This week, my guest is Faisal Saeed Al-Muttar, an outspoken writer and activist who was raised in Baghdad and has firsthand experience with authoritarian regimes. He survived the Iraq Civil War, the murder of his brother, and several kidnapping attempts before becoming a refugee in the U.S. in 2013. He has founded several initiatives, and in 2017, he founded the nonprofit Ideas Beyond Borders, which aims to prevent extremism before it takes root by providing the Arabic world with access to translations of works of science, women's rights, and enlightenment literature often suppressed by authoritarian regimes and dictatorships. In this episode, he shares his experience under these regimes and militias and highlights the need for mental health. We also discuss his commitment to education as a way to combat extremism and the notion of teaching people how to think critically, not what to think. Here's our conversation. Well, Faisal Saeed Al Mutar, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm very excited to speak with you. And I want to start by asking you you know, my mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I'm wondering if there's something that's missing from your resume that you think people should know about you.
1: Well, first, thanks you so much for having me um and that's actually a very interesting question the first time i received such a question um i would say that um and i can talk about my story a little bit in in the is that maintaining hope when there is nothing in you can see um and maintaining that energy uh during my refugee story i would say is the thing that really shaped what i I am today but it's not something in my resume because it's really um the days in which I wasn't really much learning about anything, but I was really just being patient and and believing that there is something, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So really maintaining that hope and resilience is something that is not available in the places and in, in, in the universities I study that or, or the, the workplaces. So that's, I would say, the thing that is not, and really the story and really maintaining that energy is, is the is the key.
0: Yeah. And we, you know, we're definitely going to talk about you being a refugee and sort of what your experience is. But I wonder if you could just give us a brief description of who you are.
1: Sure. Uh, so my name is Faisal Matar I'm originally from uh, Babylon in Iraq. And I was raised in Baghdad in the capital city. Uh, my parents studied the United Kingdom. They came back to Iraq in the 80s. And Iraq then went after to a war. And my neighborhood turned from a residential neighborhood into a military al-Qaeda uh, headquarters in West Baghdad, where I grew up. So it went from kids playing into the streets, into militias and people with guns and, and sectarian warfare, etc. cetera. And that's like the, the epitome of the civil war. So that, in that, that days, I decided to go crazy and tell people that they should get along with each other uh, and speak against sectarian narratives and more for inclusivity, for unity, for really having an identity that is beyond just a person's sect or, or racial identity. And then as a result, I ended up unfortunately on the decal death list. Uh, and I was chased by by some of these groups. I had to leave the country in in uh, 20, 2009 and I arrived to the States as a refugee in 2013. And, um, and then I, four years later, I started my organization to actually try to help uh, the countries I grew up in.
0: And we are going to talk about your organization, but something that I'm really interested in because of sort of the, the discourse around refugees um, in the U.S. has always really just been confusing to me. I You know, I'm, I'm wondering why we like don't want to welcome people. And so I wonder, like, what was your experience being a refugee in the U.S.? You know, now you're a citizen, but, but did you feel welcome? Pretty much.
1: I mean, I've had a very positive experience uh, living here. In fact, mm-hmm. I was hosted by a family uh which i call the united nations uh the mother is like half mexican half asian and the father is like half native american half african-american and then we were all like at a dinner table and and i was like where is the where is the un uh, representative here um so i was uh welcomed i mean i've had a very pleasant experience over here Uh, i was resettled by an organization called ymca that's when i arrived to the united states in houston In Texas. And then I was welcomed by the family uh, in Virginia. And then I get a job after I moved to New York. So it's been overall a very pleasant experience. However, you mentioned the kind of the politics and the conversation, the political conversations about these subjects. And that's, I think, is one of the most unfortunate things, I think, in in today's America in which everything is politicized and everything Mm -hmm. is viewed through the lens of politics ignoring the, the humanity of refugees. I mean, first and foremost, hu- refugees are humans. And, and they when they are generally viewed from the lenses of uh, political expediency and really just being a, a talking point for a politician in, in in whether it's pro or against, uh, is something that I find very unfortunate, uh, especially around the uh, surrounding subject of refugees. And I have supported a lot of initiatives and really books that uh, here that are written about refugees, that their main aim is to humanize refugees, to show that, yes, there is that title of the refugee, but really they are humans, they're mothers, they're fathers, they're people who who most of them really have great ambitions and have been through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think, one of the common themes through all of the refugees, is that why somebody is a refugee is because they are escaping something and they they really have been through many cases a very traumatizing experiences. So that's really the common theme. But other than that, is is we have a very diverse crowd. We are humans as everyone else. And I think is that, unfortunately, I mean, I, I mean, since my arrival to America in like 2013 until today, I see that the conversation about migrants and refugees, et cetera, is only getting more political, um, yeah. it's only getting more needed. And in a way, I think that contributes to like the dehumanization of, of of refugees. And I hope that we can change that with conversations like this.
0: Yeah. And you and you said, you know, like they're they're sort of escaping something and trauma and then I, I feel like they get here and then we sort of like re-traumatize them because we're we're requiring all these things and and and, and again, dehumanizing them. And then you see, you know, if if people immigrate to, let's say, Dubai, uh, a white person that immigrates there is an expat, and then someone of color with brown skin is an immigrant. And it's, it's just like the discourse is just so confused. And and I wonder how that makes refugees feel. Like, you know, like they've, they've gone through horror that I, most of us, I don't think would be able to survive, and that our spirit wouldn't be able to have hope in the way that you said at the beginning. And then we expect them to like bend over backwards to enter our country that you know nobody owns. Like we, you don't own your country.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's you what know, is, is is literally uh, makes makes it sometimes yeah harder for people to really uh, be able to. I mean that the ideal is that they end up in a better place and both emotionally and physically, etc. In some mm-hmm. cases. Uh, I've seen, yeah, refugees in fact become end, end up in a worse emotional state than uh, than before. So yes, it's it's a uh, very unfortunate. And but I see that there are a lot of efforts uh, really emerging over the past couple of years that try to change the narrative, try to uh, humanize. In fact, I was just did a course in an organization called Weave Tells in Florida. That is all about giving refugees their own voice. So in that way, no one speaks on behalf of refugees, but rather empowering them with speaking, public speaking skills, literacy, um, any skill that they that will empower them to actually be uh, able to shape their own narrative and not let anyone else shape it for them. And I think that's a, an initiative like this is exactly what we need.
0: Yeah, that's it's great because it's instead of saying like, oh, I'm a voice for the voiceless. It's like, mm, they have a voice. You just like maybe need to provide your platform or something and- Exactly. You know, speaking of initiatives, I know that you have ideas beyond borders. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of share the origin story and the mission behind that.
1: Sure. So so the original story actually comes from my childhood. Uh, my parents taught me English at a very young age and Iraq is actually a very interesting case. So we moved from Saddam Hussein, which is a dictatorship that controls all sources of information um, to a state in which we really don't know what the truth is. So we moved from two channels to a thousand channels. So from sometimes in books, I compare to like from 1984 to Brave New World. So from uh, state-controlled truth to post-truth world. And I've generally been passionate about learning about different cultures and really making knowledge accessible to people and not make language as a barrier uh, for for really learning about what's happening around the world and 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 um, all of that. So I've so, so when I was young, a young teenager, I was like uh, translating uh, kind of like little novels and, and poems and all of that stuff from different cultures into Arabic. And when I made, made it to America, I always wanted to kind of institutionalize that. And there were a lot of efforts within the Middle East that trying to do this, but, but many of them have very little funding. They don't mm-hmm. really have kind of any form of institution. So I brought them all together under one umbrella called Ideas Beyond Borders. And really, the mission is making inaccessible information accessible. So all of that information that is not available um, in Arabic, that people can learn about, whether subjects about human rights, philosophy, literature, you name it, that does not exist in Arabic. And Arabic is one of the least represented languages on the Internet, which is something I, I find really fascinating, because it's a language spoken by more than 350 million people. But because of censorship and authoritarianism and really, I mean, most of these dictatorships, the most thing they do want is not to make people learn about what's happening around the world. So they try to censor that information, try to make it less and less available. So with here us being in the States and being able to kind of are guarded by the First Amendment and, and, and protections for free speech, we're able to publicize and publish many of these materials and make them available for free in Arabic for people to download and teaching people about how to circumvent censorship while they're there so they can access our content. Um, and our main program, so that's like the flagship program, is called Beit al-Hikmah 2.0, which is named after the first house of wisdom in Baghdad uh, in the 13th century, in which Baghdad used to be, at the time, the capital of the empire. Uh, and they used to translate works of from Greek, from Africa, from China, from many of the different different areas into Arabic. And so the program is like 2.0. So this is like the new version oh uh, of, of wisdom. So that's that's really the, the key concept. And also we do a lot of physical work, training students at universities how, how to be better translators and learn about different cultures from culture exchange, et cetera. We, um, we're now actually rebuilding a destroyed library uh, that, that ISIS destroyed at the University of Mosul. So we're working now with the university, actually putting the books in the shelves and buying the books, putting them there, provi- getting the list of all the books that the students need and really buying it for them. So we have a combination of physical work and digital work. Digital work is the biggest one. So that's where we have 4.5 million sub- subscribers. Uh, but on physical, we're also now getting a lot of hun- hundreds of people really joining us, um, in, whether it's booking the shelves of the library, whether it's some humanitarian work, whether it's um, training people of how to be better translators to be connected, so it's it's a really, it's a, it's, it's one of, uh, it really keeps me going,
0: to say yeah. the least. I wish that my Arabic was better so that I could help translate, like, yeah, Inshallah, like maybe one day.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um,
0: um, and so I know, you know, you're you're speaking about information and sort of making it more accessible to everyone. And, and I know that education is also something that you're committed to because you won the President's Volunteer Service Award from President Obama in 2015 for your special commitment to education. And so I wonder if you could share more about why you're so committed to education.
1: Definitely. Um, it's, I mean, I'm really interested of teaching people how to think, not what to think. Uh, and yeah. I think that is really a necessary skill to have in the 21st century, especially in this kind of information overflow that we're facing. I mean, there's a lot of conversations today I mean, to some extent, driven by the presidential elections, 2016, et cetera, and the election of Donald Trump about the conversation about fake news and misinformation and disinformation, et cetera. And I mean, for somebody like me who grew up in the Middle East, I mean, disinformation is the norm. It's not, it's, it's, <laughs> not the, it's not the exception. And and as I said, like, for example, when I grew up, I didn't know that, for example, Iraq invaded Kuwait until 2005, in which I learned it from like a National Geographic documentary saying that Iraq invaded Kuwait because what we were taught from elementary school, from TV was Iraq was invaded and we won that war. So there were 33 countries who came to Iraq and Saddam Hussein with his wonderful army was defeating these these troops and Iraq is a liber- and, and then when, in 2005, I was just like uh, going through watching TV and I saw a documentary about, about the, that Iraq war and we invaded Kuwait. And I was like, what this? Then I talked to my dad. I was like, "Did you know about this?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes, but I was worried that if I told you or, or told many of others, then the word might spread and I might get into trouble." So this is the kind of the information, um, and and there is, I mean, this is a benign example of 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 mis- to some extent of misinformation. There are m- multiple others that really. Push people into sectarian sectarianism and extremism, etc. So that is really my like goal is to, is to get people to through the diversity of knowledge, through listening to different opinions, through realizing that there is more to the truth than what is really sometimes being told. That being told um, is something that amazing, amazingly passionate about. And really, what I think IBB is mainly about is that not only we try to Cover that there is little content in Arabic on the internet, but also there is little factual content in Arabic on the internet. So teaching people about critical thinking, media literacy, uh, being able to really differentiate between facts and propaganda, or mm-hmm. really teaching them of how they can gather facts, because it's one thing to know facts, but also it's like how to be able to be closer um, to 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 reality and 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 away from. Kind of the, the narratives being being driven by extremists and, and others. So that's really what I'm very passionate about. I think this century I, I, is is defined. I mean, in in video games, it's kind of called the information game age. So I think is that it is the information age and it's also the misinformation age. And I think is that people need to be equipped uh, with the skill sets for them to be able to um, live together, as as we are seeing today now with, with COVID and and COVID vaccinations, etc. You have millions of people who think this is not true. This is not real. COVID is all made up. Uh, vaccines are gives you 5G, which is kind of. I mean, I wish vaccines give you 5G. but like right? My signal actually kind of. <laughs> so, so I, I would take I would take a 5G uh, addition to my to my signal, especially when I'm biking in Brooklyn. So, but really the the so that is like and that is really important that people need to be aware of the facts because we live in a society together we're not living as just distinct individuals as ourselves in order for us to reach form of herd immunity or normalization etc we need to have some agreements on what the facts are at least when it comes to 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 something as a global pandemic so i think is that this is what i'm really um putting my life into is really kind of diversifying this cover formation and really getting people to know what confirmation bias is, what logical fallacies are. And it seems like there are people who uh, think that's a good idea. And one of them is probably Barack Obama and, and others who, who uh, think that this is what I, what, what the, this century should be about.
0: Yeah, I, d- I did the IB in high school and and they make you do this course called Theory of Knowledge, where you basically have to like question everything you know. And I think probably, you know, for 17 year olds, that is good because it's sort of sending you out into the world to sort of suss through these things. And I realized that while you were talking about, you know, not knowing that Iraq invaded Kuwait, that my, my mouth was open and my jaw was dropped. But then it's, this, it's sort of the same thing in the US where there's an entire party that wants to argue against like how the country was started, whether, you know, slavery was bad, and and how we sort of teach the history of slavery and the start of the U.S. And so I mean it's like we're we're clearly all very much the same, um, and and the U.S. is no better than the Middle East.
1: I mean, misinformation is is a is a global phenomena, and it started I probably with like the beginning of humanity. It's, it's something yeah. that always existed, and it really takes different shops, ch- uh, shapes in different countries, and really the and yeah, everyone is dealing with it as as you mentioned. I mean, as what happened in January six, in which uh, you had group of people believe that there is a cabal of Satanists and and uh, etc. that control. I mean, this is misinformation on steroids. I mean, that we've we've seen that as an example. And and what what I think was uh, sad about it is like some people took action on this misinformation. Is that the I mean, some many people believe in some form of misinformation, but it takes a level of radicalization for someone to entertain an idea of a Satan is controlling the world, um, and to actually going and and trying to to really invade the U.S. Congress. Um, mm-hmm. and so what I think is that it's def- there's there is a lot of work to be done here. Uh, I I wish that I. Uh, have a clone <laughs> that I can do the work here as well, but it's, it's definitely there's a lot of uh, common themes in um, here, and also like the rise of far right movements in Europe. You see um, some talking about the glory of the Aryan race, and and I mean that is misinformation <laughs> on steroids. So, so yes, like I think I think it's 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 very important that um, and the organization is called Ideas Beyond Borders, so we definitely are not, uh, we believe that these ideas are, are universal. And, and I think need, and these tools are universal too.
0: Yeah. And speaking about being universal, I saw that you have a quote about, you know, the Middle East being sort of like the opposite of Vegas. And I wonder if you could say it and then sort of explain it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that is from, from an interview. And, and, and it said, yeah, the Middle East is the opposite of Las Vegas. What happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East, <laughs> uh, which is the phrase of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's the is the opposite. And really, that was a, as an interview, as a uh, of conversation about the Syrian refugee crisis. And the fact is that during, I remember mean, that interview was from like 2015 or so, and the, the, there there is a lot of voices for, for good and, and bad reasons in which they just dish the Middle East as, oh, this region is irrelevant. Uh, what are we going to do there? There's nothing we can do to do there. And the Syrian refugee crisis is a great example that if you leave things, just go in their organic way, um, the, the Syria is just across the Mediterranean. So really, mm-hmm. it is it is the Middle East. It's the center of the world and also is the birthplace of the third largest monotheistic religion. So in a way, it is um, a very relevant region. So all of these kind of dynamics that affect that such as the Syria refugee crisis, the rise of ISIS, the now with many of these things regarding famine in Yemen and other other places these have global consequences they're not just stuck in in that one region and so that was as far as that it's it's the middle east cannot be ignored um and i don't think any region in the world should be ignored and and i think that the Middle East do its location and kind of some extent its history, make it kind of uniquely connected to the world, um, and, and mainly to to pretty much everything. I mean, there's connected to Africa, it's connected to through North Africa, and then connected to Europe, through the Mediterranean and to Asia, through West the Western part. So really it's it's it, I think it's uh there I mean the vo- the voices that I was kind of pushing against uh the some of the voices of None. This, I mean, and sometimes these things get mixed because there is a voice that are anti-war and there are voices that are anti-intervention, and it's and and some of these voices have also been dominated by a lot of versions of misinformation, including by the dictators who don't want to be challenged in the region. Yeah. So, for example, Assad and others have supported a lot of initiatives even here uh, in the states that are quote unquote anti-war because. The guy wants to stay in power. I mean, it's, it's it's pretty obvious why he doesn't want to be challenged or doesn't want any form of international coalition or 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 uh, or work to actually try to make him negotiate. So that is really the. That I think that that was kind of the, the the what I was what I was talking about. And also, I mean, the rise the rise of ISIS. I mean, ISIS is a was and is still existent. Is global organization. I mean, they they actually don't in a way is that we do have one similarity uh, is that they also don't believe in borders. So, so yeah. the, the ISIS, as in, they don't think of any form of borders or, or any form of, of, of restraint is that they think that they have the ability or at least they believe in, in, in kind of a global dominance. So that is, I mean, th- that vacuum that was created in, the northern part of Iraq or or the west uh, and the northern part north and eastern part of Syria um is ne- not needed to be filled and then these extremists filled out that vacuum and so we have to the international community have to work hard to actually prevent these vacuums from being filled by extremist groups and terrorist groups who uh, want to do the world harm um and and they're now having expansion in Africa and Mali there was a group of children that were killed in Mozambique. Um, so they in Somalia, of course, they have been going on yeah. for a while. Nigeria uh, with Boko Haram. So yeah, so like these are all groups. Many of them originated in 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 in, in the leader. I mean, the leader of ISIS was Iraqi, and we we have to stop these uh, groups from doing damage to um, the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And then. Could you explain the, the racism of lower expectation?
1: Uh, that's also from, I think probably this from the same interview. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and so here's, I mean, here's what what I think and that actually has been um, back to our conversation about refugees being humans and an agency and really having the power, having the agency to actually lead your own life. Some of the, some of the conversations, especially here in the US um, about really i mean give you like a comment which which was, was um Oh, like you people there you arabs you hit your women like i'm not here to judge you okay so so that was so let's kind of dissect that You people <laughs> yes. yes um and that person was actually saying it not this person is like refugees welcome black lives matter like he's like on on the progressive side of the aisle um so Mainly, there is that element what is sometimes called moral relativism, which is yeah. that oh, um, we like mainly white liberals. I don't want to use the race, but is that oh, we have we have we have figured it out we figured out that LGBT rights are good. We figured out that women's rights are good, etc. But these people, um, maybe they haven't, and 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 we shouldn't be judgmental. Or we shouldn't uh, actually apply. Similar moral expectations of them as we expect of us. We the white, we figure it out. We know LGBT rights are good, women's rights are good, but these people are not. And I, at the beginning, I thought this was like a sentiment by one or two ignoramuses that that really like were not. Um, and I realized that there is more more of that in terms of mm-hmm. that the co- the concept that moral t- is that because of differences of culture and differences of uh, is that people? I do believe, in some sense, that obviously morality have a, changes differently in different places and different cultures, and and what people value in different cultures are sometimes different. Uh, but at the same time, I do believe in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'm a, a big believer in in that kind of universal. Um, I don't think women in the Middle East like to like to be beaten, nor yeah. <laughs> anywhere else uh, like to be beaten. I don't think. That uh, gays and, and and LGBT community in in Uganda like to be kicked out from the country. Um, I don't think I think that these values of respecting human rights, respecting the really religious freedom, the ability for people to practice their own faith, um, etc. I think these are values that are universal, and the, and someone should uh, when somebody from whatever culture and whatever race commits something that is. Uh, abhorrent as uh, female genital mutilation or or domestic violence, uh, we should not be. You know, that's our culture. We should respect it. I mean, I think I think that humans have rights. Cultures are living organisms that keep changing and they keep evolving. The culture of United States today is different than the culture it was four hundred years ago, and so is the case in Iraq, etc. So. Cultures are a living organism, and they should be up for debate and criticism mm-hmm. and and dialogue. But humans should have the standard human rights in which no one, regardless of their race or ethnicity, should be faced for, for face violence or face any form of discrimination um, because they come from a different culture. That culture allows. I mean, where I come from, like in, in in the Middle East, like and in Iraq, and in, in particular some parts of Iraq. Um, there are areas like in the South in which, for example, like I remember once I went, um, it was with a friend of mine, in Southern Iraq, and it was the first moment of my life in which I didn't know who was the mother and who was the daughter. So like you see the mother is 14, but the daughter of the other daughter is also 14, and like the guy has like seven, eight wives. No one knows. All of them are called Hussein. And it's like it's really hard to – look at that and we'll be like, you know what? Like this woman was married off when she was 14. Uh, it's hard to or maybe 12. I don't know. Maybe they married earlier. And I mean, some parts of Yemen, they married them when they were nine. And it's hard to look at that. You'll we'll be like, no, I, you know what? I should respect that. Maybe in, in that part of the country, nine year olds are OK to be married. No, yeah, <laughs> That's uh, I think I think marrying at nine years old is wrong. And I think is that we whether it's intercultural, uh, intercultural dialogue or, or intra in terms of looking at people from different countries, um, I think is that there should be some extent, uh, and, and I think that back into like critical thinking and, and, and all of that stuff, it needs to be reached through dialogue, it needs to be reached through evidence, uh, through reason in which we as a humanity agree on basic set of principles in which of germulation is wrong, uh, domestic yeah. violence is wrong, Killing gay people is wrong, and I. If someone's culture says that no, gays should be killed, well, this culture needs to evolve. Um, it's as simple as that. And so that conversation, because here, because of also, I mean, United States, and for example, like countries like Germany, um, in which in Germany they have they have a strong history of groups like I mean, Germany with Nazi Germany, etc. So they have that kind of reaction which I think is of like, no, no, we don't want to touch this. Uh, this is like, we, we have done this before. Yeah. with and, and as a result, the overcorrection ends up being harming, like there were a lot of stories of, for example, domestic violence of Arab women, and then the police refuse to intervene because they're like, we, they don't want to be viewed as trying to be judgmental or trying to harm. Um, and I think that's really harmful. It's mainly not to the privileged who are living in, in the the privileged Germans, more like to the poor working class, lower middle class, in many of these places in which uh, they came to places in which they have some of their human rights respected, and they're not getting that because of some of these elements of cultural relativism. So that's that's really what what the comment was about. Sorry I took so long. <laughs> but, no, uh, no, I
0: totally understand that, because I like what you said about evolving. It's It's like when people say, well you know, my grandmother thinks this because she was like raised back then. And it's like, well, now she's living now. So she can she can like adapt her thinking to now because we're no longer back then. Um, and it's always interesting when people say something like, you know, their grandparent or so-and-so, their great aunt thinks this like horrible thing from the past. I'm like, well, back in the past when my grandfather was at the same time as yours, he thought not those things. So it's very possible to not have been thinking those things.
1: And just I evolve, yeah I mean I mean the I mean the late example from like North Africa, I mean Mauritania is the latest country to remote to outlaw slavery um and they outlawed it, I think in the eighties, so they are the last country to actually and they still have some elements of that, and they evolved, I mean that's a nice example I mean they have to evolve I mean I mean the, the thing, the question is like it's not like it's a, I think it's it's a choice. I mean, slavery is wrong. Like, period. <laughs> no, there should no, yeah. there should be no discussion about. Like, let's say some co- tribal cultures in Mauritania thinks, thinks that that's a good idea. Well, they have to change. <laughs> the, they have to change the law because slavery is wrong and it's bad. And that's it. Like, and I think is that, yes, I would la- I have respect for tribal culture or the, or, or, or the tribes in, in some parts in, in, in Mauritania. I can still respect them as individuals, but I don't have to respect all the ideas they believe in. If they believe slavery mm-hmm. is good, then' that's the idea I disagree with and and uh, so i I think' is that that's I think one of the things that we have w- would love to maintain is that you can respect the individual without necessarily agreeing or or respecting their some, some ide- sometimes really bad <laughs> bad beliefs and bad ideas um yeah. and really maintaining that. I can still respect the tribes in Mauritania, but at the same time, who opposed the law of outlawing slavery? But at the same time, no, screw this. <laughs> if you yeah. think slavery is a good idea, then screw this. I believe. It's like I, I, I think is that we have to uh, be stridents for human rights and kind of universality of, of, uh, of, of these values.
0: It's yeah. It's it's respecting their humanity um and and acknowledging like what is happening in the moment and accepting that moment, but deciding that that is not acceptable yeah, the the thing that is, and that is something that my therapist taught me. so I'm like, oh, thanks for that. Um, but you know, I want like
1: she's she's um. great.
0: I can send her info um. I know that you have gone through a lot of like unacceptable things. You know, your, your brother was murdered and there were several kidnapping attempts on your life. And so I wonder, I know you mentioned hope, but sort of like what in these dark moments sort of kept you going and sustained you?
1: The scariest thing was actually losing trust in people. And that is the main thing within the civil war, because in the civil war, it is not like you have like the army, in which you know this is the enemy, and then yeah. in the civil war, you don't know who is the enemy, and you live in this kind of condition in which you don't know if your friend is part of the militia, is your is your is your cousin might be sympathetic to the militia, is your neighbor part of the militia, so you are in constant stage of fear and paranoia, which is in many cases justified paranoia, uh, because speaking of the kidnapping attempts. Uh, I was reported by a colleague of mine uh to Al-Qaeda to actually saying that this guy is crazy and it should take him. So so the that is the craziest challenge, which brings me to the greatest hope. The crazy, that kind of is really maintaining friendship um and and valuing friendship in these difficult times. So, really what, what kept me going is that I had and I still have many of these amazing friends in which regardless of all the paranoia and all the fear that was going around, we actually maintained our friendship. And that friendship is actually what kept me going, uh, is that these relationships that I build with my, some of my high school friends and, um, and my, my, my members of my family is the, is the thing that in those difficult times is the main thing that kept me going, is, is these friendships. So I think is that with that challenge of, of constant fear and paranoia, there was also that kind of... Uh, Love and and compassion and a friendship, that and a level of trust that really evolved that became in a way like and then became like my brothers and mm-hmm. um, that that's really what kept me going through some of them yeah many many challenges and the constant fear and paranoia from constantly being watching over your shoulders and watching over what you say and not not knowing really if um, that that person could report you. To the militia, uh, and or this person is actually honest about yeah. the fact that, what their beliefs are. And and I remember once I was in Syria, which was not at the civil war at the time, but I was I was in a taxi drive, was a taxi ride, and the taxi was kept insulting Assad. Like he's like, oh, this guy, he owns mansions. He he's very rich. All that stuff. That is in many cases they try to they try to get you to speak. Is like, oh, I just like this guy too and then you end up in the intelligence services. Yeah. And that is, was the situation under Saddam in, in which the theory was out of four adults, one is in the intelligence. So it's reached a level in which people don't trust their wives and husbands anymore. So like, I, I've actually heard stories which I eventually, I was like, this is too, this is like too crazy. And then, and then I kept hearing them. So I was like, okay, that's that's into something. And in which people, Start being afraid of their partners, which would be like, "Oh, are you, are you part of the intelligence? Are you part of the intelligence?" And it reached a level of like fear in which people's families start being fractured, um, and that was the condition of Iraq prior to the war. And then we moved from like one regime that you have to respect and fear into a hundred militias that you have to respect and fear, and you mm-hmm. never know, say so like. Like talk about things you learn, like I, I call it like the Iraqi equivalent of sex ed, <laughs> which is you get to know like what flag is militia have? How do they pray? How do they speak? So actually there was like times in me and my high school friends were like training ourselves that if we pass through militia X, this is what we should say. And I had a fake ID. So I had an ID said I am Sunni. His ID says I'm a Shia. And then if you go through this militia, you have to pray this way and you have to show this ID. And you we actually were training ourselves of how to like recognize the flags because uh, they had different flags, recognize from their accent and dialect that they actually, okay, this is from that part of the country, this is from that yeah. part of the country. Uh, so this is like. Unfortunately, what my 15-year-old self was learning, uh, which is identifying flags and, and and figuring out who to fear and who not to fear, and and um and also it's like just because of my name, and my name is Faisal, which is named after the 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 first king, and it is associated with like the Gulf states and et cetera. So like if I go through some militias, I sometimes say like, oh I'm Saeed, <laughs> So that my which is a more neutral name um than, than mine. So so I had to learn all of these things. That was like the constant ecosystem uh, in which I would grew up in. And unfortunately it's still the case for a lot of people today.
0: And you know, I was I was gonna ask, like sort of how someone who survived a civil war would like what are the things you would say that those of us who maybe haven't need to know? And like you just hit on that. And so then I wonder like what you would say to us and, and how we can be agents of change. And sort of like be a society of care and show care to people who have lived through civil wars.
1: I mean, there is a lot to be done. I think there should be effort, international effort, focused on mental health. Um, yeah. Because these, this ecosystem is really um, ruins people. I mean, mental health. I mean, that constant fear, and even when I mean, it took me a while. I mean, on a personal level, it took me a while when I transitioned to more safer countries to actually get used to this idea that there's such a thing as safety and, and, and those all the time and i think that i mean there should be focus on mental health um there should be focus a lot on really i mean advocating for the concepts of pluralism and and, and humanism in general in which we're all humans and really push against that some of the sectarian narratives that exist that try to divide us and divide people into different sects and you your name is this and you have to be treated this way etc so i think is that which is really a significant part of my work is making that information about coexistence about pluralism about the importance of humanity um above all uh, available in languages and, and really making it easily digestible because there are a lot of like books written about the subject and there are 600 pages, and unless you are doing a master's degree, uh, no one is going to read. But we kind of changed change it into like two-minute videos, one-minute video, um, which is kind of more friendly to the new, newer generations. So I think that's a combination of both of really fo- focus on mental health and focus on education, um, I think will we'll do gradually. And I, I, do, I do believe, I don't believe in a magic wand. I think that many of these solutions take time. Uh, they're gradual. There will be some, there there is some resistance, but there is also a lot of acceptance. There's a lot. Of, I mean, the the taboo of mental health is changing in the Middle East. Uh, there was there were a lot of taboos regarding the subject of mental health, um, and I mean some yeah some people think that like unfortunately like like things like autism is caused by Satan uh, uh, being inside you or things like that. so th- these beliefs are still there, but I think they're kind of being erased and being replaced by 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 more acceptance of subjects like mental health and it's the same with with the acceptance especially within the newer and younger generations who really lived it all and they have tr- they have lived under authoritarianism they've lived under sectarian theocrats and they're like we don't want either of those and we want a better alternative and which explains why like we have like 4.5 million subscribers because we are part of that alternative narrative. And I think that that's what we think we need to push on.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you have like a piece of advice that you you would share with youth in the Middle East?
1: I would say like, never give up is the, is because if you give up, they will win. And that's really what I always remind myself of is that if I I mean there are times in my in my even now running a nonprofit and with all the logistics and the administrative stuff and and difficulties of funding, et cetera, they're always like, well, maybe I should like now in America I can start something new, all of that stuff. But I always remind myself that if I give up, I give up on all the people that I'm helping and all the people that I'm working with. And really, and if we give up, they will win. It's as simple as that. Because they are the extremists and others, they are always organized, they always have the energy. And we should take breaks once in a while, take care of our mental health, take care of, make sure that that our families are good and give a hug to our moms, Uh, but at the same time, wake up and do the good work. And I think that is um, my advice to Middle East and I think everybody who's facing any form of difficulty in their lives. Mm
0: -hmm. And then what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity?
1: Division and polarization. I think think that, I, I mean, living living under a civil war is is both a traumatizing but also an educating experience. And the constant fear of what I am afraid of is that, in a way, is that the information landscape is also getting us very polarized. And there's a lot of now studies and about how like social media is creating bubbles and and whether political or social or um, and even though we are amazingly connected, which is amazing, like as we are today, I think that some of these technologies are also making us amazingly disconnected and people are on their cell phones looking, talking to all the people they agree with or, or et cetera. And I think that as a result of that, there will be a lot of populists, a lot of propagandists, etc., who will take advantage of our division and try to make us more divided. So that's that I would say is my biggest fear, and with 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 modern technology in combination of really, uh, so that's like in which our wisdom is not evolving as much as our technology, and that <laughs> and that is is my fear. Our technology is going off the roof, and our wisdom sometimes is questionable. That's a nice way um, of so putting it.
0: <laughs>
1: um, yes, yeah, so that that I would say is is, is uh, my biggest fear.
0: And then, what is your your greatest hope for humanity?
1: I think the the alternative, which is that there are a lot of voices that try to bring us together. And so with all the kind of the negative um, news that I mentioned, you you, you saw me through the Progress Network. And the Progress Network idea is that there are also good things happening in the world. And there are lots of efforts happening in the world. And the narrative that, that not that negative things don't exist, but mm-hmm. i think is that we have to change our society and really change to some extent the media landscape that talks about other people helping each other that talks about really people transcending boundaries and and marrying people from different races or or, or having friends with different races because you watch the news 24 7 and pretty much all what they tell you is you have to be afraid of something and yes you have to be afraid of a global pandemic Yes, you have to be etc But also there are other good things happening in the world. And there are nurses that are staying, I don't know, two days awake, just trying to help people. And these stories sometimes don't get as much attention as the bad things. And as a result of the bad things, you have, again, the populists and propagandists who want to take advantage of our fear to take more power. And I think is that many people are realizing that and there are... Different voices, different organizations, like the Progress Network, like others who want to change that narrative to see, see, there are a lot of good things happening in the world. One, one of my favorite books, um, which is books I translated, uh, by Professor Steven Pinker. Um, I mean, here, he wrote two books. what is called "The Better Angels of Our Nature," and then the "The Enlightenment Now," which talks about, yes, there are all of these things, bad things happening in the world, but we also have a, much less mortality rates, much less child mortality rates. We have who are now much closer to cures for cancer. We have m- m- Even with a global pandemic like this, I mean, within a year, we were able to find a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Look at the death for the Spanish flu. Um, and I think, or the plague. <laughs> um And I think is that there are a lot of news and we need to figure out a way to market it better and really make good news spread as fast and make them as engaging as bad news. And I think that's, I take some responsibility to make this happen <laughs> and, I, and I wish others, and I'm, I'm sure you are doing that too. So, so, uh, that's what gives me hope.
0: I like that. Well, um, shukran ya thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Same here. Same here. Thank you so much for, for, thank for, for,
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at moongi.ngomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.